From Electron.com, I'm Weldon Johnson, and this is Track Talk. On today's episode, we have an exclusive interview with Vitaly and Yulia Stepanov, the Russian whistleblowers who busted open the massive doping scheme in Russia. The most powerful man at Nike in the sport of running, John Capriati, has stepped down. And we have the troubling story of the Moscow Marathon being held in the COVID pandemic with 20,000 runners. Just kidding, everyone. This is the Let'sRun.com Track Talk podcast. The Dallas Cowboys have won a game with 20,000 fans in attendance. It's a great thing. All right, guys. Well, then I don't know whether to laugh or to make fun of you. I thought you were trying. I mean, I'm known as the woke one here, but you're trying to turn our podcast into the daily. I don't know what's going on here, but glad to hear you speaking in your normal register voice and for another week of track talk with you guys. Well, every podcast that is taken seriously, John, they speak like this. And I just feel like COVID is getting me down. I, I just need to tone things down a little bit. But guys, we do have a lot to talk about. Some of that is true. We have an exclusive interview with the Stepanovs. They are the Russian whistleblowers who I think essentially changed anti-doping in sport by going undercover, exposing the lid on the cover-ups and everything in Russia you guys spoke to them, so you guys can chime in a little bit more. John Capriati, the most powerful man in the sport, alleged by some, is out at Nike. We have the great Rome Diamond League meet. We'll recap that. We have the final Diamond League meet of the year, the Doha meet coming up. We've got a great World Half Marathon coming up. And we're only, I think, 11 days away from the London Marathon, the great London Marathon. It's going to be a great show, y'all. As always, you can reach us, 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786, or email the show, pod at letsrun.com. Yes, John, I just finished the interview with the Stepanoffs. You have to listen to that, people. It's the final hour of the show. David Walsh, the great journalist who took down Lance Armstrong. Lance Armstrong sued him for a million dollars. Lance Armstrong referred to him as a troll. Ultimately, David Walsh was vindicated. He's written a new book on the Stepanoff story. It's a story that everyone needs to hear. It's not getting the publicity that it needs. These people, we talk about heroes in life trying to make the world a better place, and they have done that to great a great expense to their own life. They had to relocate to America, and they're enjoying it here, enjoying running. It's a great interview, so definitely listen to that for the final hour of the show. Do you guys know where they live? I mean, do they reveal this stuff? They live... John and I know. They live in the United States, but we can't say any more than that. Yes, we do. We've been invited to hang out with them, and their great seven-year-old son, Robert. I'm going to start coaching him to greatness. Folks, And if you want me to coach you in general, you can always still sign up for the Let's Run.com coaching program, letsrun.com slash coaching. I've got a great update to you. Last week, I sort of hinted about my footlocker candidate, I have written back to them. They want the private coaching. I do have a strong candidate for the Foot Locker finalist now. This is a different athlete than the one I was talking about last week. So very excited. Robert, I also want to ask, before we dive into actual pro running stuff, I want to ask about your running because we're about to record this podcast and you notice the time and it's like 12.06 and you're like, oh my God, it's afternoon. I always run at noon. And then you got up left the room for about 60 seconds and came back and said, I just ran. Are you honestly counting? I want to know what happened when you exited the room. I ran to the refrigerator and grabbed my Coke. (laughs) 
Are you going to log that, put that in your running log? No, I wasn't wearing my Apple Watch. I don't think it's going to automatically record. No, I, I'm, I'm running a little bit. I'm enjoying the fall weather. But um, my, my sub three hour marathon is still a ways off. But I, I, I'm, as I told the Stepanovs, my running is getting better and better slowly, but surely. And folks, if you want to support the podcast, you can also join our supporters club. Become a VIP for only 30 cents a day. Go to letsrun.com slash, forgot the URL, Weldon. Subscribe, letsrun.com slash subscribe. And also the GOAT 15940 shirts are here. Anyone can order them. 30 bucks. This is a premium quality shirt. Order them now. Go to shop.letsrun.com. And supporter clubs members, if you want extra shirts or want one at all, you didn't get to sign up for the initial free shirt, you get an extra 30% off on these shirts. So those are great deals. Everyone take advantage of those. And if you're in a running club, big running clubs, want huge discounts in the supporters club, email me, wejo at letsrun.com. We're a college team. Well, it's giving out ridiculous discounts for teams. Anyways, enough sponsor plugs, the tally plugs. Where do we begin? Should we go back to last week's Rome meet? Yeah, let's talk about Rome very quickly because we had a special. This is if you're part of this Let's Run.com supporters club, you would have heard we had an immediate post meet podcast where we talked about all the action. But there, you know, it was an incredible meet. Jacob Kiplimo outduels Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the Battle of the Jacobs, 726 to 727 for 3,000. Mondo Duplantis breaks the world outdoor record with his 6.15 clearance in the pole vault. Carsten Warholm ran another incredible 400 hurdles, 4707. So we talked about all those things. Is there anything, you know, we're almost a week later at this point. Anything that still stands out to you that you want to say about Rome? Well, I just want to remind the, the regular listeners, at least the ones that aren't VIPs, and many of the VIPs may not have listened to the special podcast. We apologize for the audio problems and that. But on this very show last week, I said Jacob Benjamin would lose to Mr. I'm having trouble with his last. Oh, Caplimo, John. In the Battle of the 19 Year Olds, I was proven right. Now, I did back off that prediction on the message board in a, in a momentary act of stupidity i talked myself out of my own prediction but i'm just worried folks how is jacob Engelbrechtson feeling today he's lost to someone younger than him his youth is over he's now 20 years old he turned 20 on saturday or something like that john do you think he's depressed he's i mean he didn't he didn't quite he devoted so much of his life to the sport he wanted to be the best and now he's losing to people younger than him and he's only the second best european in history at 1500 and 3000. It is interesting, Robert. I was looking at this, you know, because he didn't medal. Obviously, he's had tremendous success in the sport. He's incredible. But he didn't medal in either of his events last year at Worlds. He was fourth in the 1500 and fifth in the 5000, uh, which, again, for, a nine, for an 18 year old, I guess he was 19 at that point, is really impressive. But he was obviously shooting higher. He'd kind of been the number two guy in the 1500 all year. And I was looking up, I, I couldn't believe his personal bests are 328 and 727, and he didn't win either race. So I was trying to figure out, like, this has anyone ever done that before? It seems pretty much unprecedented. And I actually looked it up. The only other person who has personal bests of under 330 and under 730, and they didn't win either of their personal best races, do you know who it is? It's a quite famous runner. Legat. Well, then, you nailed it. 
Bernard Lagarde, personal best, 326 in the 1500. He did not win that race. And 729 in the 3000. Didn't win that race either. Pretty incredible. Yeah, I was kind of kidding about him being over the hill. But can we just take a minute? First of all, it was great to see Kaplima win. But I, 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 I sort of sometimes people bashing a bit because he hasn't won the big one. He hasn't won a medal. And some, you know, maybe the future isn't going to be the 325, the world record that his father has predicted for him. But maybe it will be, but we have to take a step back. I always want to take, let's take a step back in big picture. His season as a whole has been amazing. I mean, look at his 1500s, 328, 330, 333. And then, oh, after Rome, he did go to the Norwegian Championships and run two more races. This, this guy loves running. He did the 800, 1500 double, ran another 333. I would like to see a video actually of this 800. Because he's run two, three of them this year. Well, he ran, actually had heats of the 800. So he ran 146 in June. Then he ran 154 in the prelims and then 148. I want to know if that 148 is all out from the front. I'd like to see a video of that because that could be his sort of Achilles heel in the 1500. No, there's no way that was all out. He's definitely capable of running. He's run 328 for 1500, Robert. You think all he could do is 148 in the 800? Well, I'm on. just saying, I'm just, I wonder how hard he was going. I mean, yes, his PB is 146.44. I think most people would like to see that a little bit faster. But we have some exciting news about him. This guy, he's the anti of the Bowerman Track Club. He's always racing. And it looks like he very much well be, may be running the World Half Marathon Championships. What day is that, John? October 17th. So, you know, in, in what, three or four weeks, which would be amazing because when I've read the stories on him, you see his father. His father's the coach. The father's got the th- coach, the th- the, his two older brothers. One of them won on fifth in the Olympics. One of them was a medalist in the 1500. But they had physiological testing for him, and they said Jacob's VO2 max and all this stuff, the threshold is off the charts better than the brothers. And it's implied based on that they think he could run a sick, sick half marathon. And, oh, my God, he might be debuting at age 20. This guy is, like, defying the stereotypes. He's doing it all at a young age. So the good news is it looks like he's going towards the world half, although his dad said he has not been invited yet. So please, organizers, get him in that race. John also has exclusively broken that Kiplimo's going, right, John? Is that what the story you broke? That I didn't break that. I broke that Jeffrey Camworo, the three-time defending champion, says that World his agent told me that the World Half Marathon Championships are not in his plans, which I, I'm taking to mean that he will not be competing, will not be defending his crown in Poland next month. Probably not because he would like to, but you remember he had a car accident and broke a tibia in June, so it's kind of hard to imagine that he'd be back in September ready to go and, and win. But th- this race is going to another. We've got London to look forward to. We've got the 10,000-meter world record to look forward to, attempt to look forward to. But then the world half is going to be sick because you're going to have Caplimo, Cheptegei, and, and, and potentially Engelbrecht. It's going to be an amazing, amazing race. Can't wait for that. Yeah, Robert, I mean, I just want to heap some more praise on Jakob Ingebrigtsen here because, like you said, this guy is just not afraid to show up and race outside his comfort zone. Remember last year indoors, he ran great in the 1500. He won the European title in the 3K indoors with silver in the 1500. Then he shows up and runs the junior race at World Cross. Even though it's you know ridiculously hilly course, 8K, we thought it was a little bit out of his range maybe. He shows up and the course just ruins him. Like He was like on the ground in the mix zone. He was so exhausted. 
but he showed up and he he got beat and then he came back and had a great track season. I just have a lot of respect for him willing to mix it up on all surfaces across all distances. Yes. And I mentioned this on the other show, but probably the worst take I've ever seen on the let's run message board came after this Rome race. And someone's like, you know, he had a decent season, but he just couldn't win the big one. Maybe he needs a coach like Alberto Salas or to teach him how to win it. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever read on the internet. in like at least a year, like, a coach, a coach doesn't teach you how to win the big one. Like part of that is a large part of that is genetics. Like this guy wins every single race he runs this summer, um, except when he raced Timothy Chariot. So he runs three twenty and three thirty, and, and people are complaining about that. And then he runs a seven twenty seven and loses to Caplimo. So, like the the guy runs historically fast times, loses the race, and it's something in his head. No, 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 no. And it's not like Alberto taught Galen Rupp how to win the big one. What what is Galen Rupp won at a national level? Like, give me a break. Uh, at a national level, he's won a shitload of stuff. international level. International. He won level. the he won the Chicago Marathon. I'm just saying. Sometimes you know the weird thing, the sad thing about our sport is there can only be one one winner. I guess that's all sports. Like you could run 325 and then you lose to someone who runs 324. Can I flip this on its head, Robert? You are the man who is always saying if Evan Jager doesn't win gold, he should dump Jerry Schumacher. Can you please now admit that take is nonsense? No, I will not make. I will not admit that take is nonsense. I'm just saying when you if you stagnate after a number of years, changing the coaching, changing the stimulus will give you. Uh, you almost always that first year when you do something different, it's going to make you better. So if he fails to get what he wants in 2021 then i think moving forward he needs to change the coaches did robert just say it's a sad thing that there only could be one winner in sport so he's now for participation trophies i mean that's what we're going to become wow he's really changed and should we the other point i had hearing him rant on was should we crowdsource a bunch of money and like get like 200 grand to be like evan like rojo will coach you for next year we've, we've raised the money you have to dump schumacher and be coached by rojo I think that'd be an interesting question to ask Evan is how much money would it take for you to be coached by Rojo instead of Jerry Schumacher? Is there such an amount? Like if we offered him $1 million, would he just be like, Jerry, love you, but uh, you know, I don't want to be coached by Rojo, but I will, if he's paying me $100 million, I got to do it. Now I, I want to take Pascal with me. I want to take the plyos and the drills. I don't really bother that. I need to outsource my, you know, the supplemental stuff. Coaching guys, coaching the steeple is pretty easy. I dominated the steeplechase at the Ivy League level. Almost had a guy take down Olympic finalist Don Cabral. Adrian Dannemiller, I love you. So, so close to beating Don Cabral at the, at the conference championships. I had multiple NCAA qualifiers in that event. So, Evan, if you want to go sub sub uh, eight, I've coached a lot of guys to sub nine, so it can't be that much different. <laughs> and final thing for, on Stockholm – I mean, these guys are all so young. Mondo Stop, the world record. Stockholm. You guys know what I'm talking about. I was like about. a Just month be quiet. Ago, be quiet, please. Be quiet. We're trying to get this podcast done. We got to get to this hour interview you guys did. People can hear me talk because you did an hour interview. Anyway, Mondo's only 20. He breaks the world record. Jacob Ingramson's 19. Kiplimo, officially, he's only 19. Well, I guess Jakob is now 20. But, like, these guys are so young. I mean, LA 2020. 28. Do you guys even remember that? Uh, it's eight years in the future, so I'm having a hard time remembering what happened. 
these guys will only be, you know, 28. These guys could still be in their prime essentially then. So a lot of good things to look forward to. And a lot of good things to look forward to these next three weeks. I mean, it's going to be like a golden age of running this fall because there's not going to be much after that. Um, it's really great, these three events we got coming up. 10K World Record Attempt by Joshua Cheptegei, the London Marathon, and the World Half Marathon. So it's going to be fabulous. Okay, one last take on Rome. Was the other big middle distance race was the women's 800 Jimariki win. And I think we've all in agreement, folks. Laura Muir was third or fourth. This was a good race for her because it shows to us that she should not be running the 800 next year. Not that she really would, but by racing, you can erase all doubt, John. She should run the 15 or the 5. I, I agree. Uh, again, this has been blown humongously out of proportion. It was a passing idea, that a passing fancy that I floated out there. And Robert has chosen to interpret it as the dogma at which round I base my life. But yes, clearly 1,500, 5,000, that's Muir's wheelhouse in a global 800 final. You know, probably going to get a similar outcome. Well, she got third. You're probably not even going to get third in a global final. So yes, move on from that result. You take your victory lap, Robert. Yeah, there is another Diamond League. The final Diamond League of the season is Friday in Doha, John. What do we have to look forward to? Well, we got a few distance races here. The The men's 1500 and 800 are pretty interesting. So the 800, you've got Bryce Hopple trying to rebound. He was defeated his last time out over 800 meters. Remember in Zagreb, that, that great race where Daniel Rowden won it. I mean, it's not like Hopple ran badly. He's, he ran 144, but he'll be looking to rebound. But he's got Timothy Chariot. Dropping down here, maybe in search of an 800 personal best. He's run 143-1-1, so, and we obviously know what he can do over 800, over 1,500. So I think Chariot's probably the favorite there against Topol. What do you say? Oh, I love this. Chariot's in the 800? Oh, this is amazing. Because unlike, except for Ingebrigtsen, the only pro we have, we, we never see pros run off events on the men's side. This is fantastic. I definitely think, well, who do I think's the favorite? Sure, it has a faster PR. Remember. Okay, then he's the favorite. Yeah, contrary to what John said, Hopple didn't run that well in where was it? Ostrava? Zagreb. I look. I, I didn't say he ran. I don't think he ran poorly though. That's what I would say. Right, but saying that he was a second and almost a half worse than his first run of the year. We're getting late into September, so I think with those factors, I'm going to go with Chariot as well. But I wouldn't be. You shouldn't be surprised now if Bryce Hopple beats him. I mean, he's a world-class 800-meter runner. At their prime right now at 800, I picked Hopple to win that race. Okay, we've also got a 1500. Again, this is some guys running off events. I mean, Salmon Borrega, he's a 5K guy. Sufjan Albacali, he's a steepler. Consensus Kiprudo, season debut here, he's a steepler. Uh, and then you've got the Aussie trio, Ryan Gregson, Stuart McSwain, Matthew Ramston. James West actually coming off a nice PB in Estrava as well. I I think I'm I think McSwain has got to be the favorite here, I would say. I'm looking at all these guys in the field. And the question to me is whether he can get the Australian record because he ran 331 earlier this year in Monaco and he ran 332 in Zagreb where he basically just paced everyone. Think he maybe could have got the record. The Australian record is 331.06 held by Ryan Gregson from 2010. 
I think the big question is, can he get it? I think he's fit enough to. I just think he needs good pacing. Can he get Sean Tobin to fly in to Doha and pace this thing? Insiders, John just made a reference to Sean Tobin, the Irishman who ran at Ole Miss, who was the rabbit for the 5,000 or 3,000 in Rome last week. Did an amazing job. That was the best pacing job I've ever seen. Like People are like, oh, the commentators are like, I don't know if this guy is only a 357 PR. How can he run a four flat from the front? And not only did he run a four flat from the front, he ran it dead evenly. And then a few days later, this didn't get much publicity. We saw why he was able to do this because if you're in 357 shape, you generally can't run four flat from the front evenly like that. It was so amazing. But he ran a huge PR. 745 for 3,000. So kudos to him. Um, yeah, I, I would like to see McSwain get, get, get the, get the uh, Australian record. John, you seem to be like, when a Kenyan goes out in like 52 or 53 and then comes home, you don't make some excuse on their time. But if, if a Western runner goes off in the first lap's like half a second lap, John makes a big excuse like, oh, the pacing was why they couldn't get the world record. No, 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 no. It wasn't. It was. I'm saying he was going for a specific time. This was billed as a record attempt. The pacer slowed way down on the second lap. That cost him the record. The second lap was like one second slower. And John acted like it was a butcher. It was more than one second slower. It was a bunch slower. It was like four. It was like fifty-four, fifty-eight, or something. It was not. It was not well done. That's why well done. Johnson was a great pacer. He was like a metronome back in the day. Folks, if you need us to pace you in your race as well, then I will hop on a bike and do it. Speaking of Weldon Johnson, are they still playing the Black National Anthem before the NFL games, or is that just a week one thing? I think it was just a week one thing. Well, my name is out there. Hope all you guys listened. James Weldon Johnson, author of the Black National Anthem. I think McSwain, he's been the breakout performer of this year. I mean, he was pretty starting to make some waves last year, but he's shown that this year he's a young guy who's got a really bright future. So I, I hope he gets the record just as a fan, but... Then we'll have no more Diamond League track meets for a long time. But it's one sort of benefit of COVID has been that the Diamond League season got pushed another month. So I've been enjoying these meets we've had. I'm excited to see Conceslas Caprudo. This is the steeplechase guy says in world record shape for the steeplechase, right? He can't find a steeple. He's in this 1500. His PR is only 339. If he runs like 332 or 3, Let's find him a steeple. And that's one thing I want to talk about. John has talked to a lot of agents this summer. And I think he talked to Caputo's agent. He can't find a meet that wants to have him do to host a world record attempt in the steeple. Chapter Guy's agent couldn't find a Diamond League meet that wanted to host a world record attempt in the 10,000. This is scary to me for the future of the sport. Distance running is now being viewed as a sideshow. You don't want to host a world record attempt in this men's steeplechase or 10,000? Like, this is what we love about the sport, but so many of the, the meet directors obviously don't agree. John, share, share the knowledge that you've got about this. Yeah, well, I think I, I my guess is that there are, cute, there are a few things working here, okay? First of all is getting athletes in from Kenya. I know we've seen a bunch of Kenyans racing in Europe, but it's it's – not easy. Like a lot of in the steeple, all these the top guys are Kenyan, or many of them are. Getting the it's you know, you need to get the visas and the meat organizers have to help out with that stuff. It can be complicated, okay? Then the second one is these meets without without spectators or with limited spectators, it's difficult. You're losing some of the source of income. Sponsors might want to cut back. They don't want to sponsor meets as much in the age of COVID. There's not any sponsorship dollars to go for. 
it's difficult. And it's not like the NFL where there's just some massive TV contract overriding all of this, especially if it's not a Diamond League event, you know? Which means that it's really difficult, like, putting these fields together, offering prize money, getting everyone in. It's tough. If And we, we've sort of been spoiled that there are still these elite races going on, but... I think we we sort of take for granted how fortunate we've even had these races. So yeah, it's it's tough. Even with someone wanting to run a steeple, I talked to his agent and he's basically like, look, I reached out to pretty much every European re- meet. They all said no, you know, they didn't want to add it. It was too difficult. So, uh, or not worth it. It's somewhat what you think he would just do it on his own if he's actually in world record shape because if the bonuses with Nike and the future contract bonuses would, would be would be helpful. But you're talking about, you know, the money not being there. Anyone see this? London, even London, the great marathon, they've canceled. Now they have a very, they have tiny appearance. They have tiny prize money to begin with. It's not that much for first. Someone look it up. They've reduced the prize money this year, 50%. So COVID has been a disaster for the marathoners because they're used to getting huge appearance fees. Basically only a handful of, of marathoners are even going to run one marathon this year. And then next year, all these marathons that are spring marathons have already postponed. London's already postponed to the fall for next year. Um, Vienna just did it this week. People aren't sure about Boston. Like th- They're going to miss out on three straight appearance fees for a lot of these guys and gals. It's a, a, a disaster moving forward. Someone, race directors, are you aware of what happened in Moscow? We've got to give a shout-out to the Moscow Marathon and 10K. Last week in Moscow... Race Results Weekly is reporting there was 20,000 people in the race. There was 9,372 in the marathon finishers and 11,866 in the 10K. Somehow, they're running mass participation races in Moscow. Yeah, I can't believe I didn't know about this till today. I'm sh- I'm like very excited that a country had a mass partition ma- marathon. Hopefully, the numbers look good after that. But because I, I think COVID now, it's not about science. Uh, yeah, there's some science, but it's really about people's perception of risk and how much risk they're willing to tolerate. And there's just a lot of different things. And I think we're slowly seeing some bigger events tried. And for running to come back, we're going to need big events, right? Maybe you can hold them slightly differently. I was looking at the COVID protocols for the race. You know, testing was not mandatory. They said essentially we're going to space the workers out a meter and a half. It's recommended the runners stay a meter and a half at the start. You need to wear a mask at the start. And that was it. But I think as we, and maybe they decided, you know, as we know that for healthy young adults, COVID is, it's not that deadly a risk. Sure, there's all these other stuff that can happen. Sure, young people have happened, but the the risk by age are much less for someone who's healthy and fit. So, you know, you, yes, there are secondary effects you need to think about, like, could they spread them to their parents, that sort of stuff. But by and large, I think you're going to see maybe like Dallas Marathon this December holding. You know, I think we'll kind of hopefully over the winter we can see some events going on. But the problem with the winter is, as I said, you're going to have the flu season roaring back. But John's already looking nervous over there. Worried we're going to go off in COVID. John, let me first of all state, I've already gotten my flu shot. I got it yesterday, being responsible. But I will share once again my COVID stat of the week. And yet again, it comes from a tweet from Andrew Bostom. That's with an M. As of 922, that would be yesterday. We're up to 48,300 positive tests at the U.S. universities. That's 48,300. And we have, I think, two hospitalizations and zero deaths. So I'm not saying it's not dangerous, 
But I do honestly think if we were going to do the science here, you would have young people on purpose going to college campuses for a month trying to get COVID so that we could create a layer of people that actually had immunity. For, for Herd immunity, if you will. Yes, but, you know, and keep themselves contained. I actually heard one of the football coaches, I forgot which coach it was, one of these college teams that's already started. They're like, oh, you're worried about COVID disrupting your season. He's like, no, not really. Because he said almost something like, thankfully, most of the team already got COVID right when they came Ed back. Ed Orgeron of LSU said that. Yeah. yeah. So the team already got COVID, so now they don't have to postpone it. Like, it's crazy to me now that when a college kid's getting COVID, they're canceling the games. Like, this thing, I don't know. I mean. Uh, well, Robert, look, it's good that people aren't dying from this. I think what has some people concerned is it does seem that getting COVID increases your chances of getting myocarditis, which could be you know potentially serious heart condition. I would also say that in the United States, we just passed 200,000 total deaths. That's obviously pretty scary. Look, I'm not saying I don't, I obviously want sports to come back. I think it's good that young people aren't dying. I'm not an expert on how this whole thing should be fixed. I'm not going to offer any solutions to do that. Uh, yeah, it's definitely deadly folks. You, you, 200,000. John is right about that. And, you know, the myocarditis thing, though, is an interesting debate within the debate because the Big Ten, their big, you know, the Big Ten football folks is also going to come back. So they kind of got, it looks to me like, oh, they saw that the SEC and the Big 12 were doing it and they got nervous. There was pushback and they changed their minds. They claim, oh, it's because we now have better testing and everyone now, can, if they get COVID, will get an MRI of their heart to look for myocarditis. Well, meanwhile, there's been a group of doctors that have written an open letter saying, uh, we don't think this is a good idea. It actually might cause more problems to do an MRI of their heart when there's no symptoms. So it, it's just there, there's debate within a debate. That's enough COVID talk. Let's move on. Well, you guys were kind of touching on the same things. I was going to talk about that real quick. I will link to Atlantic article on Atlantic article article on myocarditis because it's pretty interesting. Tries to put it in perspective. I feel like it's a good read, and I think it is about perceived risk shifting the goalpost, how much risk you're willing to take. And I think we're going to see, like with the NFL, we're seeing, that's one thing about the U.S. Sure, we've had waves of COVID, and I think a lot of it depends on like what latitude you're in. But the Dallas Cowboys played a game with 21,000 fans this weekend. So if that works out well for a few weeks, maybe other st states will, will copy. If it doesn't work out, obviously we'll learn from that. So you're going to have to have some sort of test events, that sort of stuff to see hopefully i mean we all want the same thing right like running events to be held safely so hopefully we can get there and moscow was the first major marathon that anyone's seen since i would say i don't even know if we had any in march maybe we had a couple in march there aren't many marathons in february but just as an optimistic person it's good to see you know you didn't see anything in the media about it it shows maybe how much russian media is different than the u.s but we'll find out I just want to go back to Rome for a second because we talked about some of the men's races. There's actually a fantastic women's 3000 as well with a lot of women from a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, Beatrice Chepkowicz, women's steeplechase world record holder. Uh, Jessica Hull's been on fire. The Australian crossed pretty much all distance distances. Margaret Kemboy, silver medalist at Worlds last year in the 5000. Hyvin Kiang. This is Doha, right? This is upcoming in Doha, not Rome. Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, uh, this is Doha. Sorry, good correction, Robert. Hyman Kiang, she just won the steeple over Chip Kowich in Berlin. Ailish McColgan, Helen O'Beary, world champion of 5,000. Agnes Tirop, former world XC champ. Laura Waitman, Gudev Sagai, who ran 3.54 last year in 1,500. So just a very, you know, I just wanted to mention that's, that's going to be an exceptional race and a lot of women 
from a lot of different distances. I guess I tend to go with Obiri just because, you know, when she's on, I think she's the best of the bunch, but I think you could see a bunch of maybe like up to five different women have a shot of winning this. Yeah, her PR is six seconds better than anyone else in the field at A20, so, or five and a half seconds. I guess, does Laura Waitman actually have the second best PR at A26 or seven? Yeah. So that's going to be a good one. That's actually the last, they put that meet last, the last meet, last event of the last Diamond League will be the Women's 3000, I guess, because of the heat there. Well, well, Robert, let's hope. I was going to, I thought, I knew you were going to bring up the weather because you always do. But remember, this is taking place in Doha in that special stadium where they have air, indoor air conditioning. So I'm just hoping they turn on the indoor air conditioning and you don't need to worry about it. Then you can just focus on the wind effects of that air conditioning system and the currents within the stadium. Yeah. Plus 3000 to me is short enough as fast as the pros are not that big of an issue. Um, I want to take a look at a few other results. First of all, in the Netherlands, um, Nicholas Camelli sold at a 2658 world leader. Impressive. Remember, this is the guy that ran 12.51 last year for second in Monaco. So congrats to him. Um, he was running at the Dutch 10,000-meter championships. Actually, former Cornell runner Ben Renero de Haan was there. Well, then he gave it his all. I don't think he was wearing the Let's Run singlet th- this time, but he was going to give it his all to break your PR, try to break 28 minutes, and he ended up dropping out. But that was one result I just wanted to give a shout-out to. Um, the other result that really caught my eye when I was perusing race results weekly was the all Japan intercorporate track and field championships, John, the, the 68th edition. I'm sure everybody was watching this in the, on YouTube or wherever, but proves the point folks that talent doesn't go away. Hitomi Nia. This is the woman, the runner that Weldon and I love. This is the runner who was Japanese runner who was fifth at worlds in 2013. And after she couldn't medal there, she just retired and was out for like four or five years she said at the time, I couldn't win, or said later, I couldn't win a medal in a race that took absolutely everything I had. That disqualifies me from being a professional. I just love it. Like, I can't medal, I'm done. But then she's kind of realized, like, I'm actually talented at running. It's kind of what I'm made to do, even though I don't really like running. She came back and got the Japanese half marathon record, 66.38 in Houston before COVID hit. Anyway, she's run a huge PB, 14.55 in this race in Japan. Um, You know, and... I'm wondering, you guys may think 14.55 in this day and age isn't that impressive. Remember now, the Japanese record is only 14.53. So it got me thinking, like, the Japanese are really good at marathoning. They're not so good at 800, 1500, 5000. So the Japanese men's record is 13.08, guys. That's Suguro Osaka, the Oregon, former Oregon Project runner. So what do you guys think? I'm just wondering, I'm curious, you have done a little research in this. What do you guys think is a better time? 13.08 for the men? Or like fourteen fifty three for the women. My instinct is thirteen oh eight. Well, then, do you have a guess? Oh, pe- like people are waiting for my opinion. I agree that I think the thirteen oh eight is better. Yeah. It, now it's interesting because you, you, you know, of course thirteen oh eight is better. It's almost sub thirteen. Like, but if, if you think about it in, in terms of the world record status, I mean thirteen oh eight is is thirty three seconds off the world record, right? And the fourteen fifty three is only. 42 seconds, you know, off, but it's a slower time. So on a percentage basis, they're very similar. The 13 is a little bit better. It's 4.37% off the world record, whereas the 1453 is 4.97% off. But it was interesting. I I, I sort of made a chart. Um, I don't know if there's anybody put this chart on the show notes, but I, I decided to compare the 8, 15, and 5,000, 10,000 marathon world records, Japanese records versus the world records. 
and they get closer the farther you go out. So like at 800, they're like 4.7 and 4.9% off the world record. Uh, Japanese like women's 800 record is like over two flat. It's two flat point um, four or five. Anyways, but you go all the way to the marathon, they're only 3% off. So interesting statistical works, my stats of the week. Well, Robert, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned, so this was only the second time, there was another Japanese woman behind Nia who also broke 15 in this race. But that, that was just the second and third time in history a Japanese woman had ever broken 15 minutes. The national record is 14.53. Guess how many women from the, ba- American women from the Bauman Track Club have break- broken 14.53 in 2020 alone? Five? All of them? I'm not sure how many that is. Six. S- six is the answer, Yeah. Shelby Houlihan, Carissa Schweizer, Elise Cranny, Courtney Frerichs, Emily Infeld, and Vanessa Fraser have all done it. It's just pretty crazy when you compare that to zero in the entire history of Japan. I found the quote that she actually said, Nia, I still totally hate running, but unfortunately, this seems like where I belong. I hope I can produce results. So she is producing results. Good. Um. We need to talk about Capriotti. We're like, this is huge news. We're like almost 40 minutes into the podcast and we haven't talked about the most powerful man in track and field is out at Nike. Like, what has happened to Let's Run? That There's a major Nike, you know, news thing and we're not, we're not even talking about well, it. Well, I think this is an inside baseball type story, even though Let's Run is kind of inside baseball to begin with. Those of you who don't know, John Capriotti is the guy in charge of sort of handing out all Nike endorsement contracts. So some call him, consider him to be one of the Nike most powerful men in track and field. He's a former coach, I think, at Kansas State. He uh, cheated there and promptly got hired by Nike. So you can kind of think about Nike's morals if you want to. But um, he's stepping down from his position. And some are worried. John wrote a good article on this on the website. You know, is this what does this mean for Nike's support of track and field? Is this a sign that Nike is a bunch of bean counters now and they're not going to support track and field because Phil Knight's kind of almost gone? And or is this just a normal, you know, he's getting older? What do you think, John? You did the research, you talked to the agents. What percent of the people think this is no, nothing to worry about? Other people think this is Nike's sign that they're not going to be supporting track at the same level anymore. I, I think. The general consensus is that it's going to be okay. Because, like, look, Capriotti is the guy who gives out the contracts. He was very committed to the sport. He would fight for a lot of money from Nike. But with that said, Phil Knight has always shown he's willing to commit money to the sport. I mean, he just paid for most of a $200 million renovation to the world cha- for Haywood Field, which is about to host the World Championships in 2022. So I think one agent I spoke to is like, look, as long as Phil Knight's around, Nike's going to keep putting money in track and field. That's the general sense I have of it. But I do think it's interesting. If you look the culture at Nike, they, you know, they're changing, they're shaking up a lot of their executive structure. It's interesting to see what will happen, but I think the, the sport will still get the money it needs as long as Phil Knight's alive, though he's 82 years old. I was about to say that, John. Yeah, That was the one thing about the article I didn't like was someone's like, as long as Phil Knight's around. Hello, he's 82. Like, he's not going to be around that much longer, most likely. So, I don't know. This was an interesting story to me. And some of Capriati's right-hand men are gone. One of them was fired. And then it came out. I think this was an update to the Oregon story. Former USATF head Craig Masbeck is also out. We had heard this rumor. John called Craig up. Craig denied that he was out. Didn't deny that he might not sort of... He essentially said he 
couldn't talk about it because he... But you asked if he was still a Nike. He said yes. Now Ken Go is saying he's not a Nike. So is this semantics of like he's going to be gone in a few weeks? He's already announced his resignation. But anyways, I'm wondering now, like, are they just getting rid of all the old white dudes in Nike? Like, or is there something they're trying to cover up something or what's going on here? I did get a text from someone and someone's like, this is probably just a retirement. This is probably standard business. They've got some new people. Maybe they're doing being more efficient, streamlined the way they do endorsements. But someone else said, or is this like not tiny percentage chance? Is Nike going to get in trouble with the FBI for the, for the world championship bid? Did, did something illegal go on there? You know, I mean, let's think about it. We didn't talk about the show last week. Lamaine Diak is going to prison. We meant to talk about that last week. Diak's going to prison. The guy was corrupt. He sold worlds before. What are the odds that he just decided to come to the U.S. and nothing shady happened? I'm, I, you know, I don't know. Is it a five percent chance? Ten percent chance? One percent chance? I don't know that they did anything. I haven't heard anything to suggest that, and I also find it unlikely that that's the reason. I'm just saying, I got this text, like, uh, and people love conspiracy theories. Walden looks upset. Exactly. People love conspiracy theories, Robert. I mean, that's just, like, so ridiculous to assume that's, like, that's just so far-fetched. Like, can we just stick it on John Capriati and sort of, like, his legacy at Nike and where what this means for the sport? I mean, if anything, John, am I allowed to talk about what I'm holding up right here? Yeah. I have an advanced copy of When It All Cost. It's by Matthew Hardy's investigative journalist. I thought this was going to be like the Alberto Salazar book, but it's called When It All Cost, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception by Matthew Hart. I have not read it, but I'm so excited to get this thing. I do not read running books generally. Well, you were so excited. Well, I was so excited that over the weekend, well, you know, when we, we generally don't work on weekends unless there's a meet to cover, uh, he calls, he FaceTimes me. I'm like, why is Weldon FaceTiming me on like a Sunday? And he's like, look at this. And he shows me the book and then he flips to chapter 14. And Weldon, tell them the title of chapter 14. Uh-oh, hold on. Wait a second, John. I have a hard copy and chapter 14 has a new title. Oh, no! No, no. Wait one second. Let me grab the other book. Okay, I'm back. I thought you. I thought it was chapter fourteen, John, and I turned to chapter fourteen in the new book. I have a advanced copy, and then the hard copy arrived two days later. Chapter fourteen in the advanced copy was titled "Let's Run." Chapter fourteen in the hard copy now is called "I Pay You to Run," but chapter thirteen is still called "Let's Run." So something got moved around. Yes. I still can recommend the book. I'm sure it's the greatest book ever written. Who knows? Maybe it says shit about Let's Run, but... This is great. I mean, maybe the lawyers... I was afraid you were going to say, maybe the lawyers were thinking we would sue them if they put us in there so they changed the title. We would write them and say, no, please, mention us. We'd love to be the subject of your book. No, but this gets to a bigger point. Like, what is Capriarchy's legacy? Yes, Nike's win at all costs. And I think in this day and age, that's no longer, you know, acceptable. This guy was known to host Mark Block... A band agent for 10 years. By the way, Mark Block's band ended last year. I wonder what he's doing now. But he, he, band agent was seen in the Nike hospitality seat in Daegu at the Olympic trials. Like, I, I think, John, some of the agents, they all agree with you that he, he didn't really care about doping as long as the Nike athletes are doing well. And I've always thought that if Nike took a lead on the doping front, the sport would be a lot better off. So in that sense, I'm happy. I, I, I'll admit you know, I'm not involved in the money side, the endorsements that much. I'm happy to see him go. I think that this 
it's time for new blood. Hopefully there's a softer, a little softer bit of approach, but I hope that Nike still keeps supporting track and field at a high level. Yeah. And that's definitely something I got speaking from people. I mean, look, there are Nike in our sports kind of like you love or you hate them. There aren't many people who I think fall in the middle, but so definitely like the people who don't really like Nike and how he operates, they think it's a great day for the sport. And I, I look, they definitely have some points here. Like, there is a he obviously like I think when it comes to doping, essentially one of the agents take on it is look, he didn't view it Capriotti didn't view it as his job to, you know, worry about doping. His job was to secure the best athletes and to win medals. And sometimes those athletes, you know, would be like Justin Gatlin already with a doping conviction under their belts. Sometimes those athletes might be suspicious. Their coach or training setup might be suspicious. Capriotti was didn't seem to really mind as long as they were producing. And like you said, Robert, if he had sort of made it clear, like, look, we're going to drop you if you get busted and you're never going to sign with us again. We're not going to send athletes to a coach like Dennis Mitchell, who had a doping conviction in his own athletics career and who was filmed undercover saying he could provide testosterone to a reporter in 2017 those supporting those kind of people shows that you know prevent kicking doping out of the sport is not his top priority john you said people either love or hate nike i just think that's too simplistic i hope more people are more nuanced nike does a lot for the sport they put a lot of money into the sport but they really drop the ball in a leadership position in terms of doping the other point I want to make is I don't know how you can discuss John Capriati without discussing Steve Miller. Steve Miller was John Capriati's coach in high school. Then he was his coach in college at Cal Poly. Then Capriati was the athletic director. I mean, this is crazy. These two just like go everywhere together. Then he was the athletic director at Kansas State. He hired Capriati, who was coaching there. Then Miller left and started working at Nike. Capriati left Kansas State because he was breaking NCAA rules, and Miller hired him. They had a nice run at Nike. Miller then left. Capriati did his thing, was the most powerful man in running for 20 or 30 years, arguably, at Nike at least. And Steve Miller then became the head of the USATF board and would do business with Nike. There's just no question around that. And I assume Capriati was the guy behind the 20-year... What do, we, what do we think the deal was? 500 million? 23 year, 400 million. Yeah, dollar deal that USATF did, sort of negotiated with his old buddy on some extent, or there's going to be some context there. I mean, USATF has never been clear on who did the deal, and they hired a, a firm of ex-Nike consultants to do that and didn't bid it out. So it's it's very interesting. These two just are like constantly linked. Um, you know, they've pretty much the track at Cal Poly, I think now is called... What Steve Miller, Capriati track or something like that. They've given a lot back to Cal Poly. Um, but these two guys just, you know, they're constantly linked together. Right. And at Nike, USATF. And it, it, I think it's indicative of the bigger Nike, USATF relationship. And now we're, ta- we're now it sort of comes back to people are like, oh, well, maybe we're glad we got the 20 years of money because we're sort of wondering oh, is Nike going to pull back from running? At least they're locked in for 20 years with USATF. But I still don't think that's the right way to think of it. I think you still bid out that contract. But a lot of things to look at and talk about. Correct. The way that contract was done, no bidding was absurd. I mean, what you're saying there sounds like a corrupt you know, country. But 
I can see why someone would accept the deal because it's like they're going to double the revenue. So it's like insurance policy. That's just not right. And this whole thing just – that reeks of like nepotism. It sounds like what a dictator would do. I mean the question I posed on the message board on one of these things was Lamine Diak must see all these things. He's like, I'm going to prison for taking a couple million dollars. Like in America, you pay – you know bid a contract and you pay someone $24 million in ex-employees commission. It's all above board so it's considered legal. That's like what I'm saying is like a pro sports team in America can say, I'm going to move the city unless you give me a $500 million contract new stadium i'm gonna move my team unless you give me a 500 stadium and that's not considered extortion like it's absurd like who do you think makes when it's all said and done including the bribes at world athletics who made more who's going to make more money i mean diak during his term at at, at world athletics you know, he's giving his son some his son was bringing in some sponsors but he's not allowed to take millions of dollars but the usatf people can take millions of dollars so who's going to make more money when it's all said and done the dx or Max Siegel and his buddies. I understand the point, Robert, but like one's illegal and one's not. And then you should argue, I think saying some changes have been made. Like when Lumine Diak was at the IWF, I'm pretty sure that the presidency's job was not paid. And now Sebco comes over and there's, there's also a CEO of World Athletics. But the president is super involved. So he's like, look, I need to get paid to do this. And I think they started paying Sebco. So maybe Diak should have just done that and got paid a few hundred thousand dollars a year. You wouldn't have to resort to bribes. But when you're taking money, Robert, Lamine Diak was taking bribes to corrupt the core outcome of the sport, covering up Russian doping. That is wrong. When you're taking money that is designed to go to the sport for your personal gain, that is wrong. And there's no indication that these other things, these people were working within their within their companies, that there was anything illegal done or whatever. So it, it it is interesting. I would love to know exactly how the worlds went to Eugene and sort of what Diak was thinking. Because in, in the past, clearly, he, he showed you pay the right people, you get the worlds. So how could Eugene overcome that? And I think th- that story probably will eventually come out. You know, may, may, I don't think we fully know that. Yeah. A couple other things on Capriotti. I mean, look, you got to give him credit. For some of this stuff, like the Bauman Track Club, he was at Nike when this got established. They obviously have a great reputation. They've accomplished a lot in the sport. The Nike Oregon Project, more controversial, but they got a lot of results. And certainly some of their athletes, I don't think, even if you're skeptical of some of their athletes, I think it's unfair to be skeptical of every single one of their athletes. And they're still supporting Pete Julian with his new reformed group. Um, so they've, and these training groups, these are sort of what has allowed the United States. They're not the only company doing it, but they have the most high profile groups. That is one of the reasons paying coaches to sort of push the sport forward. Certainly like, you know, you, you got to give him credit, some credit for that, but also at times they just, you know, he threatened to kill Danny Mackey in 2015. He did it, Robert. He says he didn't, but he, I have multiple witnesses Say he did. It happened, all right? Just lawyers. Uh, he allegedly did that. Okay. But also, John, like, I mean, that, I think at times they operated like the mafia, but that's like, I'm going to kill you, man. No, I, I, look, do I think he genuinely meant to yeah. kill? Like, he, he would, that wasn't like, I'm going to find you and murder you. He was like, he was very angry, but he was still acting like a child. And then, like, you know, I, he didn't, I, certainly his rivals, like, didn't treat them with respect always. Wazell founder and CEO Sally Bergeson 
he said, you know, she's like, she tweeted that his reign was defined by exploiting pro women athletes who became pregnant and abusive contract maneuvers to pro runners of all kind, may track and field start healing and see better days. Cara Goucher, she ran under Capriotti at Nike, then later for Wazell. She said, remember when he said he was going to buy Wazell and then bring us in and fire us to watch us cry? I do. I mean, that is just, that's not behavior that a, a nice normal person would do. But look, Nike, they won the most medals. That was his goal, was to keep Nike on top of the sport. He certainly did that. And I think there are, but the people would say, look, he didn't do it the right way and it's a good thing for him to leave. That's a, con- a common opinion I heard from many people. Okay, a couple things. The Kara Goucher story is crazy if that's true. just That's just petty and mean. We're going to buy you and just shut you up. Like, that's terrible. I wouldn't say his career, the Sally Bergeson quote, that he builds his career exploiting women athletes. I just think that's a far stretch. They, all these people previously, every company pretty much operated this this way. The women were independent contractors and they didn't get maternity. And as a society, we've spoken out and said, look, no, you should treat women better than that. You should do that. And we've changed. But I, I wouldn't say that was exclusive to John Capriati or Nike. So let's provide some context there. I think it's real easy. I mean, to make it sound like he just exploited women. He also was, you know, track and field is one of the one sports where, where women actually make a lot of money. So I think it's a little bit more nuanced there. We love to make somebody all evil or all good. And clearly this guy has done some good things for the sport. I mean, I guess most of us really just hope the purse strings from Nike stay involved. And there's a lot of cost cut- cutting going on at Nike right now. And will the new guard value track and field like the old guard? And I think the other question is, in Phil Knight's estate, does he leave something to Oregon to even somehow track and field that sort of thing? Because, uh, you know, I don't know if some of this now, like the Alberta Salazar defense, I don't know how Nike can really justify that expense, millions of dollars, if they're really cost cutting. But if Phil wants to do it on his own dime, go ahead. You know, Alberto's a friend of his and he deserves a fair hearing. So, but I, I honestly don't see how Nike money should, should go to that defense, especially if you're cost cutting. What do you mean? You, you, you don't defend your employee? Of course you defend your employee. Alberto's a technically a contractor. If, a lot of people won't defend employees if they thought they were doing something wrong. Right. Well, anyways. Do you, do you need to defend your employee if he, well, I'm not going to go too crazy. But yeah, if you think your employee's on the wrong, you don't need to defend him. I think the one issue we're all sort of big on is like, just imagine if Nike had taken a stand and John Capriati in particular had taken a stand for anti-doping. You know, I I think we all believe the sport could be in a much better place right now. They sort of dragged their feet, made it sound like it wasn't important. But also if you look at the history of Capriati back in his days at Kansas State, he paid athletes, he broke the rules. So people's, you know, some people speed, some people don't. Where we draw that line, we all want to say we're, you know, clean as, as snow, but we all draw the line differently. And I, they drew the line way more leniently than I think you and all of us wished. Agree. Anyways, somewhat Nike related. We're talking about cost cutting. Did you guys see this? This was actually from more than a week ago. I think Ken Go had a story about the end of the season for Pete Julian's group. And apparently after the Monaco meet, according to Craig Engels, Craig Engels put a tweet out saying that they had rented a yacht. So, so, Julian rented a yacht for the team to hang out on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, how cool is that? Now, Julian says a yacht. No, the team rented a boat in Monaco the day after meet. A yacht wouldn't have been coming from my budget. But apparently he didn't go on this boat. He, he feels like an old man. He says, but they wouldn't have wanted some old man there 
it's where the fun goes to die. So cool story. They they were celebrating on the boat that Nike got them. I also want to move to one story before we get to the Stepanov interview, and this was college related. College cross country has begun. We had the SEC preview meet last week. We had the Notre Dame Louisville meet, etc. So cross country folks is beginning has begun for the schools that are doing it. And it looks like the NCAA will actually have a winter cross-country season with the NCAA champs officially going to be probably likely to be taking place on March 15th, which is just two days after NCAA indoors. This is very bizarre to me. I don't understand why we're having now cross-country in the fall and in the winter. I, I think if they're going to have NCAA in the winter, they need to move that meet at least to like a Wednesday so the people can run like the studs can run the mile or whatever they need to for the indoor team and then go to nationals for cross-country. But I'm glad to see that the racing is up. And when I was looking at the results of this, folks, I had an epiphany. And I would like to announce a member of the 2020 Olympic U.S. men's 1,500-meter team. Are you ready? My lock for the team. I've read the document. I know who it is, but please tell us, Robert. Jared Nagus of Notre Dame will be on the 2020 Olympic team in 2021 for America. This guy is a stud. He's a phenom. He's just won the Notre Dame Lovo meet. He is my lock for the team. You probably have him. You might have Centro and Josh Thompson as well, maybe the Ingles. What's Josh Thompson been up to? He's been injured and hasn't run much this summer. But Nagus is a lock. Do you think he has the highest? You're still calling him a lock. You're saying he has the highest chance out of Ingles, Centro, and Josh Thompson. Nagus is the best chance to make I'm the team. I'm just saying this is my bold pick of the week. Uh, maybe he won't make the team because he won't have the standard, but he'll get in the top three at the trials, assuming he goes for it. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm going to disagree. Look, I think he's a stud. Tw- he's 21 years old. He's run 338. He could be at that level by 2021. I wouldn't be surprised, but you just – this is Craig Angles is the reigning U.S. champ. He was terrific last year. Centro is the reigning Olympic champ. Never misses teams. And Josh Thompson just had a breakout. Yeah, now you're going with a guy who's never run faster than 338. Uh, I should probably go with Centro as more of a lot because Wilton's on the last week's podcast like, what has this guy done since the Olympics? He did run 313 flat last year and 332, which is better than any other American. So if he gets close to that level, he's going to be on the team. But you know, they take three. So, the, you know, I just think his ceiling is higher than the Ingles, ultimately. Thompson's been hurt. So anyways, bull pick. Just remember it. Just... Remember, and my, now we're ready for Rojo's rant. This came out last night. The Kansas relays for 2021 have already been canceled. And Kansas put out a press release saying that they're canceling the meet because this will save them. No, 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 no. They put out a press release saying they're postponing the meet. Yeah, they're postponing the 2021 Kansas relays to 2022. It doesn't make any sense. So it's canceled. They're going to save at least $300,000. What kind of – this is what, how the colleges waste so much money – Colleges make a ton of money. Like, Penn makes a ton of money off the Penn Relays. How do you lose money on a meet? Now, they're saying that – maybe they're saying they're going to lose $300,000 because they have all this testing. No, 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 no. You, you don't hold the meet with all this testing. You either just – hopefully by COVID it's better then, or you just say these kids are young, healthy kids. We're not going to test – we can't afford to test 10,000 kids at $75 a pop. So they can get tested on their own if they want to show up, but – Trying to, I don't know. This is just stupidity. A meat's supposed to bring in money. They're claiming it was going to cost them three hundred thousand dollars to put on this meat. I mean, maybe with the COVID protocols, but this seems weird to me. 
Yeah, it, that doesn't make sense to me because you would think, I mean, look, if they're saying there's not going to be spectators or there's, you know, with the testing, maybe they end up losing money. But a big meet like that is about one of the only things where college track teams can make money from. So you would expect it, you know, if held as normal, they wouldn't be losing money on it. They shouldn't be. And while we're talking college track, it's come out that canceling the Minnesota track team would only save $630,000 a year. There's $75 million in the hole, so this is not going to get them there. Okay, that Kansas Relay thing is nuts. You're canceling something in March or April of 2021? I just, I don't know, I feel like we can wait. That reminds me, the Wall Street Journal had a big article today, Tokyo Olympics' biggest concern, challenge, biggest challenge could be Team USA. And it's saying, you know, like, USA's had the most COVID cases and deaths. Will they be able to go? I mean, like, this is like 10 months from now, nine months from now. It's just like... I feel like the article just, it's just panic porn. I mean, there's nothing around it. And speaking of track meets bringing in money, Leroy Burrell, the track coach of Houston, head of the USTFCCCA, put out a tweet yesterday saying, the University of Houston track and field program generated over $207,000 in operating revenue during the 2020 indoor season. Please do not refer to track and field as a non-revenue sport. So a lot of these colleges and stuff that have nice indoor facilities and outdoors make money putting on high school meets, college meets. So it's interesting to see that Kansas has already waved the white flag on the Kansas relays. All right, guys, are we ready for the stepping off interview? I think we are. One more question on this Nike thing real quick. Do you guys think Capriati, he's obviously made a lot of money at Nike. Do you think he's done with track and field? Or also a guy like Craig Mosbach, who has been away from track. I think there was some mention in the Ken Go that he was involved with track. But whenever I talked to Craig, he made it sound like he was doing soccer stuff in Asia and Japan unrelated to track. So that would be interesting. But do you think a guy like Craig Mosbach, who I think listens to this podcast, you think he's done with track and field? I mean, we got LA 2028. No, done with track and field. He's a track and field Olympic announcer. If he's done for track, track, Craig, can you put in a name for me with NBC? I promise you I can do – I can be like Dick Vitale, a cross between Dick Vitale and you, nuanced but a little bit more exciting, certainly better than these people they have been trying on the NBC Gold. So I, I think it's good that – it bothered me that he, he worked for Nike while commentating on track and field because most of the athletes were sponsored by Nike. I think that was a huge conflict of interest. So he's certainly not down in that sense, but in a professional sense, do I think he'll work for another shoe company or something like that? I don't think either one of these guys will work for another shoe company. Well, to clarify, Capriotti, according to the Oregonian article, he's moving into the consulting business, and the idea is to have Nike as one of his clients. So it certainly sounds like he'll still be involved with Nike. Now, exactly how, what consulting he'll be doing and what, how much power he'll have, have there, that remains unclear, but he's still going to be involved with Nike. Oh, wait, before we get to the Stepanovs, because during this, the interview is amazing, people. Please listen to it. If it, I know it's an hour, so maybe you want to listen to it another time. But save it. But they express great admiration for America, which is great because we're having a lot of trouble in America right now. And you'll hear them compare America to, to Russia and stuff like that. So it's great. And I was thinking about, like, let's put America's problems in perspective. And I read two articles in the last couple of weeks that are fascinating to me. Track and Field News had, a, had Jeff Halibut had a, had a profile of Lopez and Long and his goals for next year and stuff like that. It's a good read. But I, I didn't realize this. Did you realize his dad and two brothers were recently killed in Sudan? I mean, this was like three or four years ago. So they were killed, I think, in the Civil War, which I guess is back on again. 
really crazy and puts it in perspective. And then there was another article about Nick Bester. He, he was a, he's a, I think he's a running, he won the Comrades Marathon in South Africa like 20 or 30 years ago. Glad to see you pronouncing it correctly, Robert. Good job. He, he's like a 50 or 60 year old guy. He, he goes for a run there. He gets beaten nearly to death. The crazy thing about this story is this is how dangerous South Africa is. He regularly runs with a pistol. He had a pistol on him. They still attacked him from behind to take his cell phone. And he's like, oh, I, I, just, I lost him. I, I didn't pay enough attention this day. He's like blaming himself. It's just crazy. Like, we, we've got problems in America that we need to work on, but let's put our problems in perspective. It's not saying that we shouldn't improve on our things, but I'm just saying, like, man, the rest of the world is significantly worse, or a lot of the world is significantly worse. So, Well, you're saying so he got robbed while he was still carrying a gun. I mean, that's a whole... We can spin that out into a whole separate podcast about the Second Amendment, but I don't think people want to do that. So up next is the Stepanoff interview. It's amazing. You can check out John's review of their book, but it's just such a, a, a great story. I mean, a, an elite runner who's doped meets a guy who works for Russian anti-doping. On the first date, she says, oh, we're all doped. He can't believe it. Within two weeks, they're engaged. Then they have problems, infidelity. They're going to get divorced. Literally on the day they were going to go back to the courthouse, you have to go to the courthouse twice to get divorced in Russia. They change their mind, and they decide on that day to go record the, the head coach. They bring down all of Russian doping. They've relocated to America. It, it, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Their love for running. Please listen to it, and we'll see you guys next week. All right, and we are pleased today to be joined by Vitalia and Yulia Stepanov. If you're not familiar with their story, it's an incredible one, and it's been told brilliantly by David Walsh in the new book, The Russian Affair, which we just reviewed for Let'sRun.com. To keep it brief, Vitalia and Yulia met in 2009 while she was an elite middle distance runner, and he was an employee at Rusada, the Russian anti-doping agency. And on their first date, Yulia told Vitaly that she and almost every elite Russian track and field athlete was doping. Undeterred, Vitaly proposed after just two weeks of dating, and for three years they endured an uneasy marriage, Yulia continuing to dope and improve as Vitaly struggled to balance Yulia's doping and his own job and conscience. Uh, Yulia went on to run 156 for 800 meters, made it to the World Outdoor Final in 2012, the World Indoor, sorry, the World Outdoor Final in 2011, the World Indoor Final in 2012. But in 2013, she was handed a two-year suspension for athlete biological passport violations, which prompted her to become a whistleblower, secretly recording conversations with senior officials in Russian athletics to uncover a state-sponsored doping regime. These conversations formed the backbone of a 2014 documentary by German journalist Harho Seppelt that blew the lid on one of the biggest doping scandals in history. Forced to flee their home country, Vitalia and Yulia are now based in the United States with their son, Robert, and we are proud to be joined by them on the podcast today to just talk about their life story. Yulia and Vitali, thanks for taking the time to talk to us on the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast. Thank you for having us. I want to start just, you know, you've been in the United States now for, I think, around five years, and I'd just like to know, what are your lives like now? Uh, yes, this is correct. We've been here for five years. We try to live a normal life, like a normal family with a small child who goes to school. We don't really share uh, who we are, and not not that many ask, not that many people ask. Unfortunately, we still haven't been able to solve our immigration situation, um, so that that part is still not clear whether we would be able to stay in the country permanently, or at one point the American government says that. Uh, 
you cannot stay here. You have to you have to leave, or you will be deported. Yeah, and one of the reasons you guys left Russia, you know, in the first place is the reaction was not kind there to you when you guys blew the whistle on this um, this doping system. I mean, to 2008 Olympic high jump champion Andrei Silnov, he's one of the people who criticized you in the media. And according to Walsh's book, he said, I can tell them one thing, let them giggle around the corner, enjoy the decision which they made. I can directly call them traitors who left and gave all kinds of information there. They said all kinds of nonsense. The traitors were always shot first in the war. Therefore, you yourself can draw conclusions. I mean, that is is pretty scary stuff, I'd imagine. And I'm, I'm curious, do you guys still feel for your safety? Do you think you would ever return to Russia at any point? We have no plans of returning to, to Russia. But currently, where we are in the U.S., we, we do feel safe. I'm curious, like, what's that like? I mean, obviously, when you guys realized that you were going to go public, I mean, I, I guess you must have known it would be life-changing, but were you fearful of, of that they might retaliate against your family members that are still in Russia? And, and have you are you still in contact, like, with your own parents or your own relatives? Like, do you fear for their safety at home? Well, actually, both of our families uh, didn't know what we are doing. We kept them out of it. Both of our families are not involved with track and field or sports in, in general. So they live their separate lives. Uh, but before Hayo Seppold uh, went public with his documentary in Germany, that was actually one of our conditions that we are not in, in Russia when the documentary is aired. Because uh, from the beginning, we, we were under the assumption that uh, sports officials and politicians in, in Russia would, would not like our statements and the fact that we have been secretly recording people within the Russian Track and Field Federation uh, to, to show how widespread the doping is in, in Russia. Yeah, and our parents, they don't know anything about the doping situation in Russia. And I think it's not very smart to do anything with them. But yeah, my, my mom, she had problems at her job with her boss because um, most people in Russia, they watch in TV and they believe a government. And uh, <coughs> about me, they were saying that I am traitor, that I am uh, did bad, bad things for, for Russia. And uh, once... Uh, my mom's boss, he, uh, sh she called her and she told her, like, how could you raise such a traitor for our country? Yeah, I think one of the things that struck both me and Robert, you know, just is the bravery that was involved in coming forward with these with this evidence. And especially, Yulia, recording these conversations you had with senior officials, how scared were you? that they might find out that you had recorded them or that in the middle of an interview, they might realize you were recording them? In that moment, uh, yeah, it was very scary. But because before me, nobody was recording them. And they, uh, when they even saw my phone in my hands, they didn't think that I may be recording them because I was act like I'm on their side and I am like listening to them them and I'm doing everything what they are told me to do. Yeah. I think that was one of the things in the book that was really interesting is that the strategy you guys chose was you weren't going to hide the phone or anything. You made sure it was in plain sight and just the screen was off, which I thought was 
ingenious because no one really thinks twice about seeing a phone. They just, you know, they assume it's, it's off or it's on standby or something like that. And uh, it, it worked out very well. You guys got a lot of, lot of evidence that way. Yeah, I had a few situations when my friends asked me, like, why are you getting your phone during uh, our running? And I said, like, I have a small child and my husband watching them. And if something happened, like, I should be always able to uh, answer my phone. Yeah, and that that was enough. <laughs> yeah, your, your son was an alibi in that case. Um, so I want to go back to book... You know, it sort of starts with the start of your relationship in 2009. And the story of, of your first date is fascinating. You guys get takeaway, you're talking in the car, and then Yulia essentially comes out and just tells Vitaly, you're, who's an employee at the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, that she's doping, that every athlete she knows is doping. Vitaly, what did you know about the how widespread Russian doping was at that point when she tells you that? Well, at the point at that time, I, I was working at the Russian Anti-Doping Agency for about uh, a year and a half. Uh, since I started working there in the beginning of 2008, I saw that we do have a lot of problems and the, the organization was just established. But really up to the point when I met Yulia, I was thinking that I'm part of the team that's that sees a lot of problems but is there to fix those problems and make it better. Uh, but really, uh, her honesty made me uh, feel like a complete idiot when I really understood that Russian anti-doping agency is in fact uh, a Russian doping agency that helps Russian athletes to do well, meaning win medals in, uh, in international competitions like Olympic Games. Yulia, what I don't understand, like, it's your first date, so you guys don't know each other very well. Although I guess you guys got married a few weeks later, so <laughs> it didn't take very long. But what was going through your mind, like, to confess that on a first date? I mean, I would be very hesitant to confess that. Or did you think that he was already on the inside and would know that this was going on? I mean, normally people wait a long time. Or, or was it some sort of guilt on your part? Did you kind of Want to confess? Like, I'm fascinated that on a first date you would say, "Hey, I've got this big secret," or did you not even realize it was a secret when you told him that? Um, my, my coach told me that uh, Rosada helping athletes to cover up doping, and I believe my coach, and I was sure that he knows everything. When I told him, like, I, <laughs> I was sure that he knows, <laughs> but when I realized that he like he didn't know, I just think. Uh, just like maybe new, maybe he's working not uh, like enough, not long time at Rosada. But yeah, I, I also, yeah, I saw how it works in Russia and I was sure that he knows. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was wondering, Vitaly, how did you get hired? I would think there would be some sort of, you know, feelers to before they hired you to hire this idealistic guy before they, you know, I've always wondered that even with doping in America, like, these groups, some people say, well, I'm like, well, if they're dirty, how would they know to get this new athlete? Like, how do you first propose that? It seems like they would have done a little bit better job before they hired you. Well, well, the, this, this part, I, I don't know. I, I had a few interviews and uh, I was under the impression that the organization has been established to, to fight doping and to, to follow the world anti-doping code and to make sure that, uh, 
Russian athletes compete on level playing field. So no, nobody gave me any clues during the interview that things would be different. And then I, I started working and, and you know, it, it just, it doesn't hit you like all at once. It, you, you go to one doping control mission, you see something wrong there. You see something wrong in, in another place. You see how the communication ca is happening between the World Anti-Doping Agency and the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, how we tell some things and we hide some other things. And then again, I meet Yulia. And then I guess after that, you get somewhat full picture that uh, you uh, <laughs> you got yourself into something you didn't expect. And uh, again, the anti-doping agency is in fact a, a doping agency. So yeah, two, two weeks after your first date, Vitaly, you propose and you guys are getting married, you know, within a, a month or two. Why, why did you guys decide to get married after just two weeks? Well, the answer is always the same. We are, we were not too bright, so <laughs> uh, we, we wouldn't do it again. But, 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 uh, you know, you, uh, you make your decisions and then you, you live with it. And uh, even if you feel that you made a mistake, you, you try to fix it and, uh, you know, you, you try to build a relationship and you, you try to make it better. Yulia, were you surprised Vitaly is basically proposed after two weeks? Uh, no, and <laughs> I wasn't surprised. Uh, and that time, uh, period of my life was very hard time. And uh, I want to change something in my life. And I was thinking, like, marriage can help me with it. <laughs> Yeah, well, your, your life definitely changed, I would say, uh, you know, within a few years for sure. Um, so, you know, you guys are married and then Vitaly, you're still working at WADA and, sorry, you're still working at Rusada, and you start emailing WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and they basically come across as helpless, feeble, toothless in, in most of the book. And eventually they do help put you in contact with Harho Seppelt, but was there a time where you were worried where just things would never change, that this Russian doping system was going to go on forever? Well, I wasn't worried about that. I was, during many days, I was sure. <laughs> that's, how yeah. it, that's how it is. And uh, that's hidden part of, of sports, of Olympic sports, and most likely not just in Russia, but, but globally as well, due to in inaction of the World Anti-Doping Agency. But I guess if you look back now, uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency was established in 2000. So at the time when I started communicating with them during Vancouver Olympic Games, the organization is only 10 years old. And it's all based around legal documents. And as it turned out, those legal documents never even mentioned such a thing as, as whistleblowing. And nobody says that to me directly that, uh, okay, that's nice. You're telling that information to us, but there is nothing that we can officially do with it besides returning it back to your bosses in, in Rosada and tell them to deal with it, which was probably not a smart idea to do. At least they realized that part from the beginning. Uh, so for 
for more than four years, it was a, a complicated relationship between me and the World Anti-Doping Agency, which ended at the point where I got a letter from the chief investigative officer of WADA who says, uh, here is a German investigative journalist who specializes in doping. And there is a big chance that he can do a lot more than, than we can do, than World Anti-Doping Agency can do. It was, it was shocking to hear, but that's how it went. Do you think things have changed now? If they, in 2020, if there's a Vitaly Stepanov at, at some other country and at their anti-doping agency and they want to come forward, do you think it's possible for them to do that and to have a better response from WADA? Well, it, it sure seems like it. they do have an investigative team now. The World Anti-Doping Code mentions investigations, mention they have a whistleblowing policy. And, and in fact, uh, I, I believe it was announced yesterday that they would start investigating compliance issues as well. So if there is a whistleblower informing that the anti-doping agency is not working according to the code, they, they would be investigating the, those issues as, as well. So I, I sure hope that um, in a way, maybe we as a family help to move that forward a little bit. So uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency has more more powers and has, uh, you know, does does better to protect clean athletes. And so really your decision, it seems like the way David wrote it in the book is that Yulia's decision to become a whistleblower to sort of join you with this and start really getting this hard evidence is interconnected with your decision to give your marriage another shot. And actually on the same day, you guys could have finalized your divorce. I think it was February 8th, 2013. Instead, you go to the head coach of the Russian national team, Alexei Melnikov, you go to his office and record him. Uh, and that sort of starts the dominoes of you recording people and the evidence that you provide to HaHo. Did you feel that this decision to turn whistleblower for, specifically for Yulia was interconnected with your decision to sort of give your marriage another chance? Well, I... Uh... I was willing to fight for our messed up marriage from the beginning, and I and I'm, I continue to feel that way. And uh, you know, at one point she decided to to do the same and to to build a stronger relationship. And I can only say thank you to to her for doing that. Mm -hmm. And if it, at the same time it turned out that we can also uh, hopefully help to make sports cleaner by being united, that, that, that's only better. I, I read, I think in one article, Yulia, it mentioned that you hadn't read the book yet, because as you said, it was a, it was a difficult period in your life. And, you know, David Walsh, he was very honest about the struggles you guys endured as a couple, the things you went through. Have you read the book yet? No, I read only 100 pages and then I just threw away my phone and I said, I cannot read it. No. <laughs> No way, I will not do it. Why not? It's uh, it's very hard for me to read it because I start feeling everything what I felt before during that time, and I don't want to feel it again. I just want to uh, forget about my past, and yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, if you just allow me to add, I mean that that was. One of the things dealing with David Walsh, and we are grateful for the job he, he had done. We did a lot of interviews with him, but uh, 
and we told him a lot more. But obviously, when we saw the first draft, when I read it, and I felt uh, we we said too much. <laughs> but 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 you don't realize that, and you don't realize when the writer, you know, he builds a story, what parts he will uh, keep and what parts he will uh, leave out. Uh, and 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 for both of us, go, going back, it's it's not. It's not easy to relieve all those moments, realizing how stupid you were, how many mistakes you you were making. But on the other hand, we were a lot younger. Uh, you can say both of us were just out of college, out of college, and I didn't even finish college at the right time. And uh, and we we dealt with it as as our experience, life experience, uh, uh, told us to. And but those daily decisions that we were making. We didn't know what would happen the next day. We didn't know if uh, the marriage would collapse or we didn't know if anybody would want to use the evidence that we have. But every night, almost every night, we would have to make some kind of decision. What's the next step? Just like in every person's life. And it just, and a lot of times it, it's just, the decisions may seem illogical, how you get from one step to another, but but that's our life. <laughs> and uh, as messed up as it is, we, we don't have another one. So. Yeah, well, I, I think most people don't live their life with the idea that some, one day someone might write a book about it. So I think it certainly, you know, certainly makes sense that, you know, you might have some, I'm sure everyone has decisions they regret, that sort of thing. But do, do you feel like the book was an accurate representation of, of everything that happened? Completely. That's, uh, we. We told uh, David the truth, and he wrote the truth. And uh, uh, he's a great writer uh, who I believe I, I connected with him due to the fact that he always stood up for clean sport. He fought Lance Armstrong from cy- cycling for many, many years. He's been sued by by Lance Armstrong. His, his newspaper, the Sunday Times, lost a million dollars to Lance Armstrong in, at the beginning stages, because he wrote an article that uh, Mr. Armstrong didn't like, which was true, but uh, you know, for the first who knows how many years, he was just denying everything. And uh, but the newspaper stood behind David Walsh, and uh, David Walsh, uh, at the end, he he was right. The the truth was exposed, and uh, in in a way, I think maybe he felt that connection between the two of us that we are. Uh, whistleblowers that are struggling to get the truth out because at the beginning stages uh, nobody wants to listen because the enemy is, uh, is simply just too big. When you guys decide to become whistleblowers and collecting this evidence, what was the scariest part of that? Well, I personally didn't know what a whistleblower is. <laughs> so we, we weren't too scared. Uh, the first time uh, it was Hayo Zeppelt who brought up the term which was uh, April of 2014. So for the first four years, uh, when I was communicating with WADA, the term never came up. Like, again, it didn't exist in the, in, in the World Anti-Doping Code, so <laughs> they never brought it up. Uh, uh, so when Hayu mentioned it, I actually went back home and I looked in the dictionary, what's a, what's a whistleblower? Oh, wow. Uh, and... Okay, and then I thought, okay, if we if we could become ones uh, that, and if we can be the people who tell the truth, no matter how hard it is, 
uh, and no matter how uh, devastating it may be for for a country where we are born, uh, we'll, we'll do it, and you know we'll we'll see where it takes us, and we'll see where it takes the, the whole uh, uh, the track and field as well, if if that would help to make it better, the competition. But for for both, I guess for both of you, what was the hardest part of that whole? Uh, the whole process of different country because we don't know we never had experience with that yeah i you know you you worry and you you try to maybe try to look one step ahead at at, at the time already we we had a son uh and you you try to think what would be the best for your family but but it also you know that challenge that you finally found somebody, well, first Julia, who is willing to join your team to <laughs> to fight for clean sport and to to actually do anti-doping, and then Hayo Seppelt, uh, the journalist, and then a few other people that are willing to fight for this uh, for clean sport. Uh, it it actually, you know, you don't know what would happen next. You you you're afraid, but it also it gives you kind of the meaning. So you, you, uh, as challenging as it may be, it was also positive for experience uh, for, well, at least for, for me, because I, I, I was finally doing what I was supposed to be doing. And uh, I liked it. I'm wondering how the logistics works. I mean, Hajo is German. How did you end up in America? Like who, who brought you over here? I mean, at some level, the government had to get involved, I guess. And, like, how, how did they choose the United States to send you? I mean, were there other options for you to live? Yeah, that, that was, I'd say, another illogical step. Uh, as far as I know, the government were, were not involved, but the, the people investigating felt that it would be unsafe for us to stay in, in, in Germany, where we were in the beginning stages of the investigation. So they, they helped us move to. Um, to the U.S., uh, but but unfortunately, like immigration issues or uh, any any other you know job related issues were were never solved due to the fact that they WADA and those investigators were dealing with such uh, investigated in, investigation for the first time as well, and and the reality is uh, anti doping rules. And, and in general, doping in, in most countries, that's, that's not criminal. So you can't even bring authorities dealing with it because there is, in a way, no, no crime happening. And you guys, you, know, you ultimately decide to tr- settle here in the United States. Um, and Vitaly, you've, you've been to the, you had been to the United States a lot before you moved here. You went to high school here. You come back to run the Boston Marathon several times. What, what appealed to you about the USA? What do you like? so much about this country i i often say and, and this is just you know a bigger picture uh i i say that in 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 russia only only one vote counts in in uh in in america every vote every voice counts and and that, and that's the difference uh, and i i you know the democracy and the the choice you know you uh it's it's a better built country for for living, and that's how I continue to feel. And that's uh, if you'd ask me uh, 
for my son, where would I want him to be? I, I, I'd say I hope he's smart enough to stay in, in the U.S. when he's older because uh, the level of corruption in Russia and uh, uh, the fact that in general the government doesn't care about people uh, in, in Russia, it's just uh, I don't want to live in such country. It's nice to hear you that I think some Americans are worried we're, he we're headed your way. So. <laughs> but I, I always tell people, I'm like, you have no idea what it's like in these other, other countries. Like America may have, certainly has its problems. And recently we, we've seen those, those, you know, go into the news. But I think here we, we focus on the, on the small part that is big, whereas a lot of the other countries have problems everywhere that are hidden, I guess. Exactly, and, and and what's happening here, it's a, it's an open discussion that people can be a part of it. In in countries like Russia, everything is done behind the scenes, and uh, you know I I say that uh, Russia this year, uh, the year of coronavirus, I, I'd say it became a kingdom. Not that it is a bad thing, but at least it it selected their king. Who can, <laughs> who can stay basically forever in, in, in the power. And uh, it's just, again, that's not a democracy. Yeah. So let's talk about Russia a bit from the athletic point of view. How do you view doping in Russia now? Because right now the Russian Athletics Federation, they're still suspended from uh, by World Athletics. Um do you feel like the culture has changed? How do you view it right now in Russia? Uh, it hasn't. And that's why the, the National Federation, Sports Federation, is, is still uh, suspended by the uh, World Athletics. And, uh, but, but I'm glad that uh, the World Athletics, together with the task force they, and uh, the Athletics Integrity Union, they, they continue to push uh, for that change, to continue to to ask for, for real changes, but, it, but it's just, you know, I, I think it's hard to make this up, right? Uh, it, all of this, uh, the Russian Athletics Federations get suspended uh, in the end of 2015. In the beginning of 2016, a few months later, it starts saying that it, they changed everything. Then uh, another Russian whistleblower, Dr. Rochin, goes public and he says uh, things a lot worse than... Uh, than it was said in initially, so they can't ex escape the problems. They they have to try to change, but then uh, four years later, at the end of 2019, the the leadership of the Russian Athletics Federation, the one that supposedly changed everything, gets caught, in, including the president of the Russian Athletics Federation, in in covering up doping use. So that's uh, okay. That's that's how the culture changed. Four years of being suspended, and at the end of that four-year sanction, as you you may say, they get caught uh, cheating, and they it's not just coaches and athletes this time; it's the president of the federation as well. So they are a long way uh, uh, of really fixing things and and becoming a, and you know an, an honest honest uh, sports federation. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, Danil Lesenko, who was the world indoor champion in 2018 in the high jump. And he was, you know, they, they basically came out, they covered up. They were, they you know, the 
Athletic Federation was complicit in him failing to provide whereabouts information and then sort of helping to cover that up. And it's pretty amazing to me because when the Russian Federation was banned at the end of 2015, I thought, oh man, they they might lose the Olymp- they might not be able to compete at the Olympics. You know, this is going to be a huge deal. And then to see that they haven't had a team not only at the Olympics, but then 2017 World Championships, 2018 European Championships, 2019 World Championships. It's sort of it's crazy to imagine that they've just been on the sidelines. This was, you know, athletics powerhouse for many years. But I guess what what do you think has to change? Like will what what specific steps do they have to take? What has to happen for change to be achieved? Or do do you think change can be achieved? Well, simply they have to stop covering up doping use and 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 uh at least in, in the case with, with Yulia, our approach was always uh, first, uh, admit your, your mistakes. Second, uh, serve the ban. And, and, and third, uh, try to, to make it better, you, you know, uh, the situation better. And so they are, they are still at, at the first step of, of trying to admit their own mistakes. And the fact that the whole, uh, sport was, was based on, on doping use for, for many, many years. And, the coaches that were providing steroids and other prohibited substances uh, to athletes, young athletes, some of them are not even 18, were not even 18. Uh, a lot of those coaches, uh, uh, they just don't want to move forward simply because, and maybe it's not a nice thing to say, but they are too old to change their careers and, and they are too old in general to, to change. And to start to believe that uh, an athlete can achieve high results on just based on on their own abilities and not uh, with the help of the prohibited substances. Mm-hmm. Yulia, I'm, I'm curious as an athlete yourself. Like you get into the sport, you're pretty good at it. I mean, for everybody, like when you're a teenager and you find something you're good at, it's sort of you fall in love with running and the success and everything. It's good to have an identity. But when did you sort of realize that, wow, everyone's on drugs. I'm going to need to get on drugs. And did that scare you? Or did you just think it was normal? When did that happen? You know, my coach was preparing me. He was told me like many stories, how he was athlete and they were using drugs and it was a much stronger drugs than, than it's now athletes using and in my situation, I, I was sick, and uh, some doctors wrote, uh, were told me that I should stop running. And uh, my coach asked, uh, like top doctor, like can I, like can I give her like some steroids or some uh, like EPO injections? Can it help her like uh, continue running and fight her sickness? And doctor said, yeah, I had one case with some ski athlete and, and it helped him uh, to continue training and fight his sickness. Yeah, in my case, it was uh, when I was sick, my coach decided to give me a steroid. Yeah. And how old were you at the time? I was 19, almost 20. Well, I think one thing y'all were talking about, John and, and Vitelli, is that you guys say that they just have decided to go to clean sport. But one of the problems with that is I think the whole point of sport in Russia is to, is to 
you know, sort of raise the profile of Russia, make it look powerful and good. But my take on it is the drugs obviously work and people run much faster when they're on drugs than when they're not. And, and you've probably seen that yourself. I mean, you tried to keep competing after the drugs. You ran 156 on drugs without drugs. Like what is the fastest you've ever run? And was that, was that, how frustrating was that not to be able to get back to that level? Uh, I, I knew that probably I wouldn't be able to run again 156 uh, without drugs. But uh, yeah, I, I ran to one after uh, one year after Robert was born with German coaches. Yeah, if you have a coach who believes in you and who like supporting you, and I, I think it's possible to achieve a good result without drugs. But in Russia, uh, coaches they like like Vitaly said they are old people and they uh when they were athletes they were using drugs and much stronger drugs and they just simply don't know other way how to prepare athletes they know one way like drugs uh, drugs are working and why they should look for other way if drugs are working and for them it's very hard to change their mentality and like start telling athletes like you don't need drugs you you can achieve your result without anything and, and and if I may add quickly, it, it's just the story was more complicated because it wasn't just Russia, because it, it was a known fact with coaches as well and sports officials in, in Russia that if the problem becomes kind of too big for to stay within the country, you just go to uh, IWF leadership and, and they will cover up your doping use. So so the, the, the belief within Russia was that it is uh, all athletes are cheating. And uh, it's just uh, some sports officials are closer to those uh, top, le- uh, top level management and the president of IAAF and they can cover up more. Uh, others are not as close, but, it, but it, it's possible. So you just have to pay more money to cover it up. And, and, and it, it was true also. So it wasn't, it wasn't just within the Russian borders. It was, it was globally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lamine Diak was just sentenced to... Uh jail time we'll see if we he actually serves it but he was convicted in court of this just you know massive cover-up at the highest levels of track and field and well, that's one thing that interests me though is all these bribes were paid i mean the, the marathoner was paying six hundred thousand dollars but ultimately somehow those bribes didn't work because they ultimately did get busted which was interesting to me so do you think is that a sign for the future that there is reason for optimism despite trying to bribe i mean diak did take bribes but ultimately, someone there did bust these people. I think with Marathon Runner, it was uh, you say uh, anti-doping agency was uh, involved. Why it didn't work that in her case? Well, well, yeah, yeah. The, the thing I think where that really started, I believe, uh, two thousand eleven Chicago Marathon. She runs and she wins it. Shobuhova, I, I believe that was the year. And then her blood values are tested, and it's like. The, the lab in, uh, in, in the U.S. is uh, sending the results to the USADA, U.S. anti-doping agency, that are looking at it and uh, almost saying, like, uh, how is that person alive? <laughs> and, uh, and so, so I, I, and I don't know that officially, but I believe they, are, they start asking WADA what's, what's going on, why this uh, athlete is running. And at the same time, there is this system, Adams, 
where all the whereabouts information is entered by uh, top-level athletes uh, from all sports, Olympic sports, and also the, the blood values are entered there. So for, for those many years, somebody had should have been seeing all this uh, blood values and should have seen, see, seen those off scores, which were really off, and showing that uh, you know there are abnormalities within uh, more than a hundred of Russian athletes, and they should be sanctioned. But but again, I, I think just nobody said we have to stop this right right now, like like before London Olympics, uh, and uh, they were taking it slowly, and uh, and that's the point where where every uh, clean athlete competing at that time. Prior to London, in London Olympics, uh, they were just, I, I feel sorry for them that uh, the anti-doping system failed them, no matter where, no matter where they came from, either from, from the U.S. or even from Russia, because there are clean athletes there as well, but they, they never had any chance of, of getting what they deserve, because there was anti-doping system at a lower uh, level, and, and which was kind of covered up by by the doping system, which uh, which at least uh, you can say that was was not acting as fast as as it should have been acting. Julian, are you guys? I'm curious. Are you? Can you watch athletics now? Are you fans of the sport still? Like, what's it like when you watch? I mean, I can easily see. I mean, if you think about America, some very pro- Alberto Salazar has been banned and and stuff like that. Like, do you think? Oh, they're all dirty, just like in Russia. You know, or do you think, no, they're actually, I mean, like when I think about even, you know, I'm involved in the sport daily. It's hard for me to think. I don't think everybody's dirty. I I know my brother wasn't dirty, but, you know, do you think, oh, they're all dirty? Or do you think that it's a little bit different here? Because, I mean, you guys have no Travis Tiger. I mean, America has, people say, oh, we just covered up like everybody else. And I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Think about the big names that have been popped here. I mean, Lance Armstrong, Justin Gatlin, even baseball alex rodriguez like but i'm wondering what from an outsider i could very easily see like oh they're just as just like russia so do you watch athletics what do you think of the american sports scene in terms of drugs yeah we're watching uh, athletics yeah and uh, i don't think too much about it i just enjoy to watch it uh well I, i guess it's it's all more complicated uh, and yes, I agree that the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency—they uh, are trying to do a great job making sure that athletes are uh, competing clean in in the United States and and globally. Uh, but but also, like I believe last last week, I was reading that uh, that Amazon stopped selling peptides, and uh, before that, uh, you know, it's it's officially. It could be bought on Amazon website, and they don't sell it as, as drugs for humans. But it's uh, I, I think it meant it said something for like for pets, but can be used for for um, people as well. And and again, peptides is uh, are not as strong as uh, as uh, steroids, but it, but it still helps to uh, to improve your results. Uh, and I I just. And if it's not detectable, you you don't even know how, you know, which athlete athlete is is trying to find that edge, or which athlete says no, this is the rules, and I'm not gonna break the rules. Uh, and and 
it's impossible to say it, especially for us. But but I guess the approach that we took as a family, uh, we uh, from the I felt that yes, others might be cheating, and we don't really know what's happening in other countries. But that should not be an excuse for for the country where we were born to to cheat such massively and uh, just do not follow any any kind of rules or or respect. Or in fact, lately I've been saying that the Olympic Games and the the Olympism it, it all you know they the International Olympic um, um, Committee always talks about. Uh, the values, Olympic values, and I and lately I say well at least when we were in Russia, when Yule was part of the doping system, and I was trying to work in the anti-doping agency, Olympic values had uh, had zero values in in the largest country of the world, and that's that's how messed up it was. One of the things that impresses me about you guys is even through all you've been through, it seems like you guys do still genuinely love to run and Vitaly you sent uh, an email to us as we were sort of setting up this podcast and I'm just going to quote from it because I thought it was it was really um it was really sweet and you said to me the book is about a simple activity that kept and keeps Yulia and I together through good and bad times it is about running it's about doing this simple activity and competing against each other it is how a talented runner Yulia an untalented runner I find similar workouts and help each other become healthier and faster while training together. And we still enjoy doing easy runs together, only now with our son biking next to us. It is about love for running, specifically my love for running that I'm often too ashamed to talk about because I'm not good at it no matter how much I train and put time into it. But still every day I get ready and go for a run with my family or alone and I love it. I do wish I had a more meaningful hobby in my life, but I don't. So I run and like seeing other people running. And I'm completely fine with being a loser in the running competition as long as the competition is fair and rules are followed. And I just thought that was really that was really nice. And do you do you are you still running every day? Like how often Yulia, do you train? Do you race anymore? What is your relationship with like with running right now? Yeah, I'm still uh, training and uh this uh, summer I didn't race because coronavirus happened. <laughs> But usually, yeah, I do like some local races and sometimes even uh, go some different uh, states uh, to to do some like university races or any other. Yeah. And what about you, Vitaly? How much do you are you training, racing? I know you've run the Boston Marathon a few times in the past. Uh, not that it says anything, but I, I'm I'm in the best shape of my life now, so it's it's. Uh, it it actually keeps me motivated that soon uh, soon I'll be turning forty, and and uh, I I may feel a little bit more competitive actually, uh, competing against people my own age, and uh, yeah so I both of us continue to run now, and we we, we still love it and uh, it's just you know in the end I think it makes both of our lives better and and it took us on on this journey as well it brought us here and uh yeah we we we're glad we that we at least that part was always uh for for us as a family as, a, as something that united us are you, so are you extra frustrated right now that there are no races and you're in the best shape of your life 
there are races. The, the local races are going on, at, uh, at least where we are. And uh, okay, yes, and and there are also some just uh, uh, people get get together and they they have smaller track track meets. Uh, so it's uh, yeah, uh, I'm 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 glad. I, I mean, I, due to coronavirus, the the rules are changing a little bit. So you mm. not as many people, no gatherings before after races, but 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 the 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 best part where you just you start you stand on the start line and and then you you push yourself through a certain distance and there are people next to you somewhere that are pushing you as well it's it, it's still there uh, and uh, you you finish and uh, you you feel good about yourself that you will you woke up you you actually instead of sleeping and uh, you you did something good something healthy you you feel good and you uh, you know just makes your day and life better in general at least for me as a coach and a new dad i'm the question i have is let's talk about my namesake little robert here who's who's athletic did he get mom's athletic genes and maybe dad's passion for the sport who who's who's who, whose genes did he inherit in terms of running yeah we put him for some races he um, uh he told me like he always before race he's scared and he's like told me Mommy, I feel like butterflies in my stomach. <laughs> and I told him, like, this is a normal. I, I do the same. I always, before my race, feels the same. And it's okay. You just, you can do it. You know, you, you're like almost always, you, you are winning. Just don't be afraid. Just go. Do your best. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I, I'd be happy if it's, if it's the way you said it. Uh, Julia's genes and my passion. Yes. That, that that would be fine with me. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm worried at the beginning at the beginning of the podcast. I don't know how much time we have left, but you guys said your your immigration status isn't set. What is? Are you on some sort of visa? Who's in charge of that? Do we need to raise, get in touch with a senator? I mean, it seems absurd to me that that I don't know as, as many immigrants as we have in this country that we wouldn't be willing to accept to 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 people like yourselves who, who have done so much for. The betterment of the world. Well, as, as a family, we never tried to look for any kind of special treatment, uh, immigration-wise as well. And uh, it was, it's a, it's a process in the U.S. You you apply for asylum, you submit application, and then the next step is you you wait for for an interview with a, an immigration officer. Uh, due to the fact that there are a lot of people trying to. Receive as I lease status in the U.S. Uh, there's a huge backlog, um, so we applied uh, uh, four years ago. So, and you can say we are still at the first stage where we are waiting when when our interview would be scheduled. And uh, at, at this time, we simply just don't have any kind of status. And uh, but we understood that from the beginning that uh, nobody tells you clearly when when you would be interviewed. And actually, it, it, in the beginning of two thousand eighteen, the rules changed a little bit, and uh, they the immigration authorities said that to try to get rid of that backlog, we will first deal with incoming applications, and then we will deal with those that filed earlier. Uh, so if we if we filed in 2018 or after that, most likely our case would have been uh, we would have had decision already. But because we applied earlier, uh, it 
kind of seems like our case at least stays at the bottom because they first deal with the incoming applications and uh, it, we still might be years away from from just being interviewed and uh, who knows by by that time may, nobody may even remember about the, <laughs> the Russian doping scandal but it, it, it it's life I, I mean and if anything throughout this journey what we learned uh, you have to be patient and uh, if you're patient enough and you want it badly enough uh, it, it may happen for you or it may not <laughs> you guys seem to be handling it much better than I would I mean now that I'm a parent I'm Finances and security for the families makes me much more worried than it used to. Um, I'm sure people are curious. Like, I mean, does does WADA support you or World Athletics? I mean, you, you, people need money to live. So, how, how does that work? Are you guys comfortable? Like, uh, as surprising as it may seem, and uh, it, it, it's a longer story. And uh, and and in fact, in, in, at least in my life, it always. It seems that any good relationship for me, it starts badly, <laughs> but but you have to, you know, want it uh, to make it better and you have to be patient enough to make it better and then it, it, it will happen. And it wasn't just the case with Yuli, actually, the, the case with the International Olympic Committee uh, where we made a case before Rio Games uh, that uh, Yuli uh, may... Uh, should be able to compete as a neutral athlete at the Olympic Games. Uh, the decision by the International Olympic Committee was that she's not ethical enough to, to compete, to be an Olympian. And uh, so the answer was no. But, but then actually not long after that, the relationship started between the International Olympic Committee and actually the, the top people, including Thomas Bach, who was willing to meet with us to speak to us uh, to to try to understand our story, I guess to to build his own opinion about our intentions, and uh, after that, uh, uh, you, you, they have been helping Yulia with training, and uh, I I've, I've had a, a consultancy agreement with the International Olympic Committee on anti-doping issues and. Uh, uh, I continue to have that. I don't know how much longer I will have it <laughs> because I, I I understand that they don't they don't want to support whistleblowers forever. But uh, but on the other hand, I I'm thankful and grateful that the leadership of the Olympic movement was willing to to meet with us, to listen to us, and and to understand the issues that we are dealing with, and and willing to to help us. That 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 makes me feel good because. That actually makes me feel great to hear that because I don't know. I mean, the fact that they said you weren't ethical enough is disgraceful to me. I mean, I remember we were we thought that she should compete in 2016, but we should have made a bigger deal of that. I mean, I can't think of someone who represents the Olympic ideal more than her and you guys. I mean, yes, you made mistakes, but everybody in life makes mistakes. It's you know, if we were judged by the worst decisions of our life, it would be terrible. But I think your story represents like, hey, this is what everybody was doing, but we got we don't want to do that anymore. We want to look ahead. We want the future to be better than the past. It would have been a powerful message for the Olympics to let you run in Rio when you know Russia wasn't there to send a signal to the world of, you know, the past is behind us. We're moving forward in a new direction. But maybe two thousand well, twenty one. What about next year? Have they is that a possibility? Uh, well well let me just first say uh Thanks to, to you, and we obviously followed Let's Run around Rio Games as well, and we saw 
we felt your support and it was really nice of, of you to do because at the time you, you didn't even know, know us. You just heard the story, but you didn't have personal experiences dealing with, with us. And thank you for your, for your open support towards us. And, and also investigative journalists and journalists in general who, who made enough noise to, to know the International Olympic Committee about us. And, and even though the decision was that she cannot compete, it was the voice was strong enough for them to to want to meet with us and and you know about, about Yulia i you know i can understand partially their their decision you know she did have a doping past and 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 it was really complicated but my personal view that at least that she as a person deserved to be an olympian a lot more once she told the truth and she started fighting for clean sport, and uh, and in, in that part, the IOC felt that it's not good enough. But her her other decision was to stay within the system, and once the, she serves the ban, she, if she qualified at the national championship, she she could have been the par- part of the national team at the Olympics, which what the sports officials and coaches were telling her: just be quiet. Serve your band, we will help you, we will help you dope, we'll cover up your doping use, you come back and you'll go to the Olympics. But she didn't take that step. She took a different one and uh and it wasn't good enough for, for, for the Olympic moment. Yes. So before I let you guys go, uh there was I just sort of was curious, what do you guys what do you guys assuming you are allowed to eventually, hopefully, stay in the US permanently? You know, you're still rel- both relatively young. What would you like to do with your lives, the rest of your life? I, I guess just to try to build our own relationship to, to make it better, have a good family. Uh, on on my personal view, if I if I can find a permanent job, I'm helping the Olympic movement to be better, whether it is in anti-doping or any other parts of of sports moment, Olympic moment, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to part of it. And so that's that's our goals. I don't know what Yulia's goals are, so I, I never know what she's thinking. So <laughs> Yeah, uh, I just want to continue to be close to sport. Maybe I can coach some kids or be like assistant coach, something like that, just do something with sport. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I hope that, eventually things work out for you guys again uh we appreciate what you've done for the sport and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us the book is the russian affair by david walsh definitely worth a read if you guys get a chance but uh yeah thanks again for appearing on the podcast it was great talking to you guys thank you very much for having us and thank you for all the great job, uh, work that you do promoting the sport and uh, the olympic values